Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Um, earlier, uh, Larry preached on the three crosses of Calvary, and now we're going to look at the two targets of God's wrath. Exodus chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us out, up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill, the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him that he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands so that on one side, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful to come into your, your presence this morning, um, looking at your word Lord, we, I ask that you would um, fill me with your spirit this morning, that, that your word would accomplish its purpose, that if there was one here this morning that does not know Jesus as their Savior, that from this passage that you would, you would bless this preaching, that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, I ask that you forgive me of my sins. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, not a recommendation, but if you've ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty, again, not a recommendation, but if you've seen it, 
You may or may not recall the attitude of the main character, Bruce, at the beginning of the movie when he misses out on a promotion and he begins blaming God for everything bad that happens to him. He monologues several times about how unfairly he is treated by God and, when, and then others get everything that they want. Then he receives a message from God offering him a new job and goes to meet with God. And when Bruce meets God, God quotes back to him all of the angry things that he spouted. He said, the gloves are off, God. God has taken my bird and my bush. God is a mean kid with a magnifying glass. Smite me, O mighty smiter. Now this movie is completely absurd because God gives Bruce his power since Bruce thinks he can do a better job at being God. But there is one thing that I think that they got right. The fact that God was patient and gracious to this man that tested him. And that's how God treats his people in this text. He, his chosen people, Israel, complains against God. Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're ready to become violent with Moses. But God responds with patience, supplying their need for water, and he defends them against their enemies. And we're going to look at the sacrificial way that he supplied their need and the tenacity with which he defended them. The same God that accomplishes salvation for his people by taking his own wrath upon himself will unleash his wrath on those who oppose him as well. First, in verses 1 through 4, Israel complains. Now, at this point in the narrative of Exodus, the infant nation of Israel is only months out of slavery in Egypt, maybe even less than that. But in that short amount of time, they have seen wondrous works from Yahweh. Moses reappeared to his brother Aaron after 40 years of living in the land of Midian. He showed himself to the elders of Israel with the staff with which he could throw down and it would turn into a serpent and told them that God had heard their cry for salvation. He confronted Pharaoh with that same staff. He oversaw the plagues that God brought on Egypt after every refusal to release his people and led the people out after the very first Passover. Israel followed that pillar of smoke and fire, having witnessed the plagues but being spared from them, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Since the time that they entered the wilderness, they drank the waters of Merah, that were turned sweet. They camped in an oasis. They have eaten this food called manna that God is providing for them daily. They have seen time and time again, despite their best efforts to fail every test that God sets before them, that Yahweh is faithful to care for them and cherish them, and yet they continue to fail. The difference this time is that they do know God will provide for them, that he can provide for them, but the attitude is the same as it has been. Granted, this is a weary group of people, and it's 
a harsh wilderness, but they've seen God caring for them, supplying their needs and commanding them to take days of rest. There have been jarring, life-changing wonders done for them. And they come to Moses demanding more. It's not a question this time. It's a demand. Give us water that we may drink. We've seen your trick. When Moses retorts, they revert back to their old accusations, making themselves the victims of these circumstances and making Moses out to be some kind of mass kidnapper. Why is it that you brought us out to e- brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And they even become violent. Moses cries to God saying, "What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me." The fact that the people know God can save them from this situation and then asking for help. That wouldn't be a problem if there weren't for this attitude behind it. We all know the difference that attitude makes when someone requests something from us. We all know common courtesy. I remember from being a small child that my parents would constantly tell me to include please when I'm asking for something. And then whenever I received anything, they would ask, now what do you say? The correct answer for a good boy was thank you. God expects the people of Israel to have needs just like a parent knows that their child is going to have needs. But the the acceptable responsibility on the part of a needy child or this infant nation is a polite request for those needs. The poor example from Israel is easy to pick apart But when I'm having a bad day, I know how my mind can easily revert back to that of a fussy child and begin complaining that life is not fair. That's more difficult to admit than pointing out the faults of a group of people that lived thousands of years ago. I'm certain that I am not the only one that falls apart from time to time, making myself the victim in my mind, accusing of God of accusing God of picking on me instead of coming to him in humble prayer when I have need. We can draw on this example from Israel to focus on the solemnity that we need to have in our prayers, revering Yahweh for the blessings that he's bestowed on us rather than complaining when life is not easy. He is always faithful to his people testing us in ways that he knows we can handle, and comforting us even when we fail to pass the tests of life. And we want to look to the, to the next point of this, that um, when Israel fails, God steps in to provide for them once again, and Moses strikes God instead instead of the people. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 again. And the Lord said to Moses, this is in response to their need, the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people 
may drink. So even though Israel is a mess and Moses fears for his life, God is ever merciful and gracious. He is long-suffering and infinitely generous. He does not respond in anger. He does not threaten Israel. He does not point out their childish behavior and shame them. Instead, he gives Moses instructions to provide water to the people. Moses is to gather up some of the elders of Israel as witnesses. There are other times that Moses is meant to go on alone before God, but this time he's instructed to take elders so that there is no mistaking that God is acting on behalf of his people. He wants an audience. Second, Moses is to have the staff in hand, which was used to bring wrath upon Egypt. It is that serpent staff that was used to strike the waters of Egypt and turn them into blood. The staff that stretched out over the Red Sea to bring the waters back on Pharaoh and his army, crushing them. Finally, Moses is to bring the elders and the staff to a particular rock in Horeb where Yahweh stood and strike him. And I know this, that the text says, you shall strike the rock, but this is picturing Jesus. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10.14, that rock was Christ. God really told Moses to gather his audience, take the staff of wrath, and strike him with it. Instead of God's anger being stoked against the people that were threatening violence for water, he commanded that his own wrath be brought on himself in order to preserve these people. That rock was Christ because of in, instead of God's anger being stoked against me, having hardened my heart against God, sinning against him, God put his own wrath on his own son, Jesus. And what do we get Instead, we get living water. As John 7 tells us, On the last day, the great day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God made his own son the target of his wrath instead of me so that I can live. He spared me just like he did with Israel by making himself a substitute taking the place of that sinful people. And because of this scene, because of how Israel behaved, they commemorate it with a memorial of failure in verse 7. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now there's obviously nothing special that uh, Moses did except obeying the command of God. The elders of Israel witnessed it, and they could not have argued against uh, God, that God had intervened. They could not have said that God did not intervene in this place because there's no wooden stick in the world that's going to split stone and cause water to come out of it on its own. 
to the people at that time, Moses wanted them to remember their attitude. He called it masa, or testing, and meribah, or contending. There's a further statement concerning their attitude. They were testing God by asking, is the Lord among us or not? As if the previous times of provision weren't enough in the constant presence of the pillar of fire, that is why God made certain that Moses took witnesses with him. There could be no question that God is among them. The sight of of this is a place that is now called Wadi Rafaid, which is an oasis. I don't think that it's a stretch of the imagination to say that God created an oasis that is there now if you're already believing he split a rock so that enough water came out to satisfy the thirst of 600,000 to 2 million people plus their animals. I know that's a huge difference in numbers, by the way, but those are the estimates of the population of Israel at the time. Either way, there's a lot of water that came out of this rock, and it created a new landscape. And that is why, when we continue on in the chapter, Amalek contends with Israel. They come and try to take that water. In verses 8 through 10, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Come, uh, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So as if in answer to the question about how much water came out of the rock, there's another portion of narrative that immediately follows while Israel is camped at that same spot called Rephidim. The landscape was changed so that it drew the attention of this nomadic desert-dwelling tribe called Amalek. Amalek descended from Esau, and they're frequently mentioned alongside Moab and Edom in carrying on this feud that the brothers Jacob and Esau began by, by attacking Israel. So, Amalek would go on to be a problem in Israel's history for centuries. They were a part of many coalitions against Israel during the time of the judges. King Saul fought with the Amalekites, being commanded by God to wipe out a specific group of them. He was not supposed to let any of them live or keep any spoils of battle, and he failed to accomplish this keeping some of the animals alive along with King Agag, whom, Saul, or whom Samuel later hacked apart with a sword. David fought with Amalek on at least two occasions, one of those times after a group of Amalekites attacked the Philistine city of Ziklag, where David had taken refuge with his men while they were on the run, run while he was on the run from King Saul. The families of David and his men were left at Ziklag, and they were taken captive by Amalekites while David and his men were raiding the enemies of Israel. David caught up to them, and the families were retrieved, and only 400 Amalekites remained when they fled. Haman, in the book of Esther, was a descendant of Agag, that king that Saul had failed to kill. 
the time of Esther was all the way after Israel became a nation. They split into Israel and Judah, and they ceased being a nation during the time of exile in Assyria and Babylon. Obviously, this feud that began with Jacob and Esau carried on for an incredible amount of time. Hatred ran deep for these people, considering that Haman wanted all of the remaining Jews exterminated during the Persian Empire hundreds of years after the initial conflict. This battle is this battle that we're looking at is the first major conflict between Jacob and Esau's descendants as nations. Amalek, again, being a desert-dwelling tribe, would have been on the lookout for resources. They took notice of this new supply of water at Rephidim, and according to Deuteronomy 25, they attacked the weak and weary people of Israel that were straggling. And that is why Moses, or Moses formulates this attack against them, and God strikes Amalek in verses 11 through 13. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his, his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So Moses made this plan of attack with Joshua, commanding Joshua to go and meet this threat, but relying on the presence of God among his people. While Joshua commanded this ragtag group of fighters to contend with Amalek, Moses took Aaron and Hur with him to the top of a hill overlooking the battle, able to clearly see the effect of his supplication to Yahweh. As he held up the rod that was a symbol of God's wrath, Israel would be winning the battle. If he let the rod down, the tide of battle turned and Amalek would start to win. It gives a clear answer to Israel's question from earlier. Is the Lord among us or not? Aaron and Hur set Moses down on a stone to hold up the rod, and they were able to hold on to either end. Together they kept the rod upheld for the entire day until the sun set. Amalek, within this narrative, became a new target for God's wrath as Joshua and his minutemen cut down the soldiers of Amalek. Aaron, Moses, and Hur stood together making supplication for God's wrath to be poured out on this group of anti-Semitic soldiers. They appear as a type, the three men appear as a type of Jesus that is future to us. Each Each one holds one of the three offices of Jesus. Aaron was assumed to be priest, Moses was God's prophet, and Hur was from the kingly line of Judah. Amalek, constantly waging war on Israel, and Haman calling for the complete destruction of God's people, were an ancient ancient resemblance of the same hateful attitude toward Christ and his kingdom that will still exist 
when Christ returns to bring his ultimate wrath on the evil forces of this world. We have, within these two short narratives, they're taken together as a picture of God's wrath being placed on Jesus for those that trust in him for salvation and a picture of God's wrath on the enemies of God that refuse to recognize Jesus as Savior. And this second narrative is commemorated with a memorial of victory in verses 14 through 16. It says, Then then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, finally, God commands Moses to write a record of this event. Apparently, there was already a scroll that had been started at this point because he said, write this for a memorial in the book. This event began a new promise for God's people that someday Amalek would no longer exist because of their actions in attempting to take God's blessing on Israel for themselves. Moses also built an altar as a memorial of this event. He called it, The Lord is my banner because of Yahweh's promise to wage war on Amalek. In this place, Israel has a full view of their relationship to God at this moment. The, because of those, these two memorials that sit here. First of all, they have testing and contending, Masa and Meribah, in, as the sinful attitude of Israel. And they also have, the Lord is my banner, to show them the faithfulness of God in spite of Israel's sinful attitude. And as way of conclusion this morning, you're pictured in these two narratives somewhere. God has either taken wrath upon himself while saving you, or you are an enemy of God, sworn to be destroyed because you actively oppose him. There are only two options because God's wrath is just for all people. All have sinned, all have earned death, the wage of sin, but Jesus has taken the wages of sin on himself for those that believe in him as their savior. His death secures peace for those that trust in him for salvation. Those that do not trust are doomed to face the wrath of God without hope of being reconciled or making peace. There will be war with him if you do not accept his terms for peace.